All right, welcome to the conversation on the TYT network. Now, we're gonna talk about a really important political project called the ballot project. And this is about getting out the vote. It certainly mattered a lot in 2020, that's for sure. There was a tiny, tiny difference between Biden and Trump in some of the swing states. And it's gonna matter a lot in the Georgia runoff. So I wanna introduce you to some veterans of political organizing. Joining us now are the co-founders of the ballot project, Aton Prince Trachtenberg, Hannah Tahari, and Nika Makani, um, and as you can see, they're young. Uh, okay, so um, Hannah, let me start with you. Uh, so, what is the Ballot Project, and how old are you guys? So, we're all juniors in high school, and we're 16 years old, and we founded the Ballot Project, which is basically a high school student-led campaign to get out the vote for. We got the vote for the general election, but now we are going to be working on local elections as well as the Georgia runoff election. And what we did is we put up flyers around Los Angeles and recruited other student volunteers to help us post these flyers. And it was just easy for people to access the voter registration website through our flyers because we had these QR codes. And that's what we're also doing in Georgia. Okay, so Eitan, let me just jump to Georgia for a second. Well, you guys are in LA, how are you doing it in Georgia? So we've been reaching out through social media and email to colleges and high schools in Georgia and kind of getting them to do the same thing that our Los Angeles volunteers did, go out into their communities, post flyers, raise awareness. We have been meeting with political science groups in high schools and colleges in Georgia too. and. Just this last weekend, we gave a presentation about the runoff to a political science group from Oglethorpe University in Georgia. Okay, that's amazing. So can you guys see how many people are using here? Nika, let me ask you, how many people are using the QR codes? How is the school or other communities that you've gone to in LA reacted to it? Yeah, so on our website, we can track how many people scan the QR code to get to our website, which is the link to get to the voter registration website. So we can tell how many and generally from where, if it's coming from our Instagram or you know, if they search it up manually. And we've gotten a very positive response from our peers and in Los Angeles as well. And everybody's been super helpful. Yeah, so I remember when I was 16 years old, there was a I don't want to make it sound like it would happen every day, but there was a moment in the school cafeteria where they were seeing if this kid would eat dog food. Okay, so that's what we were doing when we were 16 years old. So I'm curious as to how you guys came up with this idea, where you cooked it up, and and how it started. So any of you that wants to explain it, jump in. There was this challenge at our school, and it was trying to see if we could come up with a way to increase voter turnout. And it initially started as an idea. We were only really supposed to just find an idea and create a campaign that could increase voter turnout. But we kind of took it a step further and we started implementing our idea into the world. And that's how we got started actually as a campaign. No, that's terrific, okay. so. Um, Aitan, let me go back to you for a second. Um, no, actually, hold on, Hannah, I'm gonna follow up on that. Was that a school-led program? Was it in a particular class? 
And then was it like different groups that competed against each other to come up with the best idea or was the whole class working together? Yeah, so it was a challenge that was introduced to us by this innovative center at our school. And it was introduced, I'm not sure if it was K through 12 or middle school through 12, but um, the high school was sent an email and anyone could participate. So we were competing against different people who also wanted to create campaigns and we were the winners of that challenge. I see, okay. Schools are great these days, at least some of them are. So I love that they had you guys do that. And look at what this wonderful thing that came out of it. So Eitan, let's talk a little bit more about Georgia. So how can people participate now if they're watching this? What can they do to help in Georgia? So if they're residents of Georgia, if they live in Georgia, they can go to our website and there's a volunteer button at the top right and they can fill out a form and instantly become a volunteer. If they're not a resident of Georgia, they can still fill out the form, but their responsibilities will be a little bit different. And that will include more networking and reaching out to people rather than going out into the field and raising awareness. So people can really help from anywhere. Just because you're from one state or the other doesn't mean that you can't help get the voter registration up in Georgia. You can you can help from anywhere. So I really recommend everybody to go click the volunteer button and become a volunteer. All right, and we'll have the link down below afterwards on YouTube and Facebook too. You can see it, it's easy, theballotproject.com, but you can click on the link too. Okay, so Nika, it looked like there was a lot of people in that picture, not just you guys, right? So how many folks are involved in this effort right now? So in Los Angeles, we got around 40 plus volunteers involved. And this was just by reaching out to our classmates and peers of all grades and whoever they wanted to go with, any of their friends, family members. And then in Georgia right now around the same amount, 40 to 50 plus are doing the same amount of work. And it honestly just, we encourage people to go out with their friends or with their family members, you know, COVID friendly, of course, if they're comfortable and give out their flyers. You know, if they're going out to a meal, just bring a flyer, ask if they can put it up so that it can reach as many places as, as it can. All right, Hannah, you know, we get the sense, well, it's not just a sense. One side of it is absolutely clear. Millennials are, the most progressive generation in American history. It's very clear in the polling, it's in the issues, it's in how they self-identify, it's in everything. But what we don't yet know is how politically active millennials are. So I know that it's anecdotal, but it's also a little bit more than anecdotal now because you guys are running this group and you're beginning to interact with folks in different parts of the country. What's your sense of how politically active your generation is? Right, so we actually found that so many people do not know when the dates are to vote, how they can turn in their mail-in ballots, how they can even register to vote. A lot of people just know that like election day was the date it was. They really don't know much about early voting or how to register. And so what we're doing is we're just trying to make it more easy for people to access the voter registration website. We're trying to educate these people who don't actually know a lot and who are going to be really important in this election. And I think that once you do that and once we start educating people more, that it's gonna be part of a culture to vote. And that's what we're really trying to do. Yeah, Eitan, look, I imagine you guys are nonpartisan. You just want people to vote. Uh, but you you do live in LA and you are young. 
so that leads me to the assumption that you're progressive, but I don't know that. But but it's not important where you are. I'm curious, and again, I know that this is anecdotal, and I know that the polling backs it up. But I'm curious, in your experience, how progressive is the younger generation? Um, <clears throat> I mean, I've seen a bunch of people from my generation of all different political affiliations, obviously being from where I live, they tend to be mostly on the left side. But I think that my generation as a whole is more progressive than conservative. But as the ballot project, it's been kind of interesting having to take a step back and being like, we're nonpartisan, we're gonna approach this in a nonpartisan way and kind of forgetting about your own beliefs for a moment to put put forward the uh, greater cause, which is just to get everybody registered to vote. Yeah, absolutely. And look, uh, you know, sometimes people complain like, I wonder who, you know, what the political affiliation of the founders of a particular group are. Who cares? If you're a Republican uh, high school student or college student, you could also register through this. N not only is nobody stopping you, they're encouraging you. <laughs> so by all means, take advantage no matter which party you're in. Um, so. <laughs> Uh, I'll go to Nika on this one. We already had really good voter turnout among the uh, young in Georgia. They actually, I think they might have been the top state. 21% uh, of the electorate overall was uh, voters under 29 years old in Georgia, which is um, a great number historically. So um, do, you, do you guys know what drove that? Is there any way to, to pour fuel on that fire since Georgia's already doing pretty well on that count? Um, in terms of what drove this, I just think that a large number of younger students uh, probably didn't realize. A lot of people didn't like of the election, and they didn't even really realize what could have happened. I don't think they expected a certain person to get elected, um, and so I think you know, kind of after that, it maybe was a little bit of a, a little shock, um, and so they a lot more people as we saw. And statistics, a lot more people in general came out to vote, and uh, and I think that, yeah, I think that just people realize, and there was also a very low voter turnout in 2016. So I think people realize that their vote does matter. It got really close, obviously, and this is really important to actually cast their vote. Yeah, hundred percent. And guys, I'll end on this note: you guys are nonpartisan, but I'm not. I'm <laughs> progressive and very loudly and clearly so. So let me just remind everyone that if it wasn't for the increased youth voter turnout in 2020 versus 2016, Joe Biden would have definitely lost the race and Trump would have gotten reelected. So this project is super important. Everybody check out theballotproject.com and Aton, Hannah and Nico, you guys are great. Thank you for joining us, we appreciate it. All right, back on the conversation. Uh, now we're going to talk to Laura Flanders. She's the host of the Laura Flanders Show uh, on public television across the country, radio stations, YouTube, and LauraFlanders.org. Uh, Laura is a well-known progressive journalist uh, who's uh, been in the fight for a long time and seen a lot of things. And and I want to talk to her about different models of systemic change as well as current uh, events. So, Laura, great to have you back on TYT. Oh, it's great to be with you, Jenk. Really a pleasure. Fabulous to see your work just grow and thrive after all these years. Thank you so much. And and Laura, by the way, is also a New York Times bestseller, author of several books you should check out. Um, so, 
Uh, Laura, uh, let's start with the current cabinet situation. So we've got a couple of morsels. Uh, some folks in the progressive community are relatively happy with Janet Yellen and Treasury, John Kerry as climate czar. Um, let me start super broad, good enough or, or uh, are you worried uh, in terms of what we see from the Biden cabinet so far? Absolutely not good enough and um, not particularly surprising either. I mean, anybody thought that the Joe Biden administration was gonna be a tremendous departure from what we've seen in the past would just have to have been kidding themselves from the beginning. So am I surprised? No, uh, you know, that some of the innovations are worth mentioning. The idea of a cabinet czar is a great thing. But John Kerry in that position, 76 years old, we can do better. If you want to model, if you want to indicate that you are about something new and that you noticed who it was that got you into office, you wouldn't have put John Kerry in that position. Although I think it's a great thing that there's a cabinet position for a, a climate czar. Janet Yellen, you know, very lovely apparently and smart person. But somebody who's been a deficit hawk, concerned about spending, as is the history of Joe Biden. So does that make me feel like we've got a team that is about to really do what's going to be required to right the ship of this country in the next year? Absolutely not. And by the way, those are the best picks. <laughs> the rest are way more. Oh, I mean, you want to talk about the national security picks? It's like great. There's women at the top of Mossad too. But you know, does that give me cause to celebrate? Not exactly. I mean, I, I just think we've you know we've fallen into this trap so many times. And, and you and I have talked about this before, Jenk. This sort of um, personalities, people stories over the actual policies of these people. I wrote about it in that book, Bush Women, going back to the Bush administration. Condoleezza Rice was as much an oil man as Dick Cheney. She just didn't look like one on TV. And this national security cabinet, you know, does it look like America? Sure, but do we want a national security surveillance state that looks like America? I'm not sure. Yeah. <laughs> not well, what I voted for. That's right. And the national security head is a woman, but she's the woman who authorized the extrajudicial killings in the drone program under Obama. So that's not really what that's we're right. looking You've for. That's right. You've got a DNI head who was in charge, you know, played a big role in the drone wars. And you've got a CIA director who at least has one incident, I think, of waterboarding on her record. You know, this is maybe a great bit of a step of the right direction for gender equality, but it's not the step a step in any kind of new direction when it comes to the US role in the world, the world, the US respect for civil rights, human rights. It's not the direction we need to be going on in if we want to just plot any kind of a new course. So today on the Young Turks, we covered a, a, a shooting in, in Florida, unfortunately. Two young African-American men killed in a police shooting. Uh, and, um, and then we were talking about the chance for criminal justice reform in this administration. Joe Biden very publicly in the debates and very emphatically uh, denied uh, having anything to do with defund the police. And in fact, in interviews before the election, he said he wanted to give more funding to the police. So um, what's your take on um, uh, not just the, the, the movement is not an interesting conversation. The movement for criminal justice reform is an absolute necessity. No one who watches this show thinks otherwise. 
what's interesting is the conversation around the framing, right? So uh, some people thought it was very poor framing to call it defunding the police, and others thought it was a good long-term strategy. Where do you stand on that, Laura? Well, you know, as somebody who tries to cover the economic underpinnings of a lot of our problems in society, I wasn't sorry to see the word defund be popularized. Because look, we've defunded schools, we've defunded public housing, we've defunded public health care. Uh, suddenly, the discussion of defunding the police, I think at its best, made people think about what are we spending money on and what could we spend on differently. Uh, I don't think most of the people who were raising the call to defund the police we're calling to sort of zero out social you know security budgets around the country what they were mostly saying was the what we are doing right now is not keeping everybody safe it is not keeping our communities safe broadly speaking and certain people are absolutely not being protected in fact they are finding themselves on the receiving end of deadly force from our so-called to, you know, security forces. So I think the discussion to go back to this question of funding is critical. And some of what people have done with that uh, slogan has been important. So in, in LA, for example, we recently had on the show uh, the folks who presented the people's budget to the city council. And these are longtime activists, Dr. Melina Abdullah and others, who did a survey across LA capturing the opinions of some 25,000 people. So that's more people than usually get involved in city council elections, period. And they're asking them what are their priorities for safety. And police funding or increasing police budgets was way down at the bottom of a list of 10 or 12 priorities. That kind of work goes way beyond the sloganeering. And I think where our media fail is that they'll debate the slogan and they'll bring on people to have a catfight about it. But they won't really look at the work that is underpinning the slogan and from which the slogan kind of arises. So pull back the curtain on a lot of these shorthands and you've got long-term organizing about shifting priorities at the level of local spending and going up to the federal government. That's where I think shows like mine and yours fill in a huge gap. But if we left it to just a debate about how our um, money media, what kind of a mess our money media can have of a slogan like defund the police, then of course you can have politicians bending over backwards to say they would never consider such a thing. Right, so then let's talk about some of the other things that you guys cover on your show, because I think it's really interesting. The, uh, for example, you mentioned models of systemic change. So can you give us an example of one uh, that people are working on that, that yeah, is not often I mean, in the media? You know, for you know, for years people said, you know, another world is possible. And I think the mission that I've taken on on my show on public television is to show that another world is actually palpable. You know, it, it is out there. What we saw in the last election, I think, were polls suggesting that people were in favor of universal health care. They were in favor of changing priorities at the level of budgets for policing. Some were even in favor of the discussion around abolition of incarceration as a solution to all our problems. They just didn't believe that a candidate like Bernie Sanders, for example, could win, that his proposals were viable. What we need to show, I think, uh, as reporters as well as as activists, is that in fact there are models of viable change happening around the country. So right now, we today I, I was uh, doing a show about what's happening in Philadelphia, where you have long-term organizing around housing rights, 
paying off in the housing authorities agreement to cede some 250 homes to local people to renovate, to rebuild, to keep out of the private market and keep in a public hands. The market, as you know, has not been a good determinant of housing values, except for investors. When it comes to actually housing people, it's not the sort of thing you can leave to just, you know, the highest bidder. Because then you see a city like Philly, one of the poorest on the East Coast, seeing all the new housing being at the very top end of the market for, for, for millionaires and above. What the people there did was during the COVID crisis say, look, a pandemic is no time to be homeless. More than ever, we need homes that are safe for our most vulnerable. So what did they do? They moved into some empty space, which happened to be the Philadelphia International Airport. Nobody was flying. There's a huge amount of lobby space there that's healthy, clean, well ventilated. They moved in, moms with kids. Two other occupations, two other encampments sprung up over the summer. And fueled in part by the Black Lives Matter movement as the protest movements grew around violence against the African American community and state violence from the police. You saw those encampments grow and stay and a community develop in the city that defended people against eviction when evictions were in order. I mean, were, were being ordered. So at the end of the day, you see a victory for people who were connected with long term nonprofits organized across race. There's a role for unions in training some of the houseless people to renovate homes. You're shifting power into the hands of local people. And more than that, you're changing the debate about housing. So that we begin to say actually investing in public housing is an important thing for the society to do. It happens in other countries, in Vienna, one of the most popular cities in Europe. Half of the population live in what they call social housing, which is well maintained, well respected, not ghettoized in the way that it is here. We can shift our sense of what the society does. Um, does it just make the way clear for people to make huge profits of public land and the resources of a city? Or does it actually cater to the needs of local people? And in Philly this year anyway, not unlike what we saw in Oakland, we saw land move into a community land trust that um, will be operated by a variety of stakeholders working together in a nonprofit environment in the city. So mm -hmm. I, it's that kind of thing, like we can do this, um, but we can't do it and we can't educate people about their possibilities if we leave it just to the media that have really no investment in changing the yeah. status quo. Yeah, and look, we're out of time, but I, I'll, my quick two cents is that the difference between what you're describing in Europe and here is that here, uh, our politicians are allowed to take bribes in the form of campaign contributions. So every city is run by someone who took tremendous amount of money from real estate developers. So you have the same exact thing happen. When they put up housing, it's actually high end housing, LA, New York, Philly, etc. Because that's where uh, they got the bribes from. Uh, and so I call it what it is. The rest of the media says, no, those are honorable people who happen to give all the breaks to the high end real estate developers. And you happen to have homelessness all around you because, hey, look at that. They're also corporate media who's in favor of uh, corporate real estate developers. So that's how this country got screwed. In, in uh, Europe, in some portions of Europe, they do something radical where the, where the government actually represents the people. We should look into it. It's an interesting Shocking. model for systemic Socialist. change.
<laughs> All right, uh, Laura oh, Flanders, sure. host of the Laura Flanders Show. You got to check it out. Uh, such great, brilliant work there. Thank you so much for joining us, Laura. Thanks, Jen. It's a pleasure to be with you on the conversation.